me. Father, thank you for showing us your glory, showing us your worth. We long to respond to who you are and what you've done for us. And so we take this time this morning to sing to you. We take this time to sit and listen to your word. And we want to hear you speak. We want to hear you show yourself to us once again. Would you help us to respond with faith, respond with obedience to what you say to us from your word this morning? We thank you again for who you are. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. You are here. You are with us. And you are for us because of what you've done in your son. And so we come to celebrate that. We come to remember that. And we come to trust you freshly. And we seek to be changed. And you are the great change agent. And so we pray that you would be at work in each one of us. Work in our hearts. Dig into those places that we can't even access ourselves. And bring us up and bring us out of ourselves. Draw us close to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Children can go on over to Peter Church and toddle time this point. So we continue walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We, a couple of weeks ago, finished up listening to Jesus' teaching on the Mount, His kingdom life discourse, and He showed His authority through that teaching. And now, as we began looking in chapter 8 last week, we began to see some of the things that Jesus did, some of the miracles that He did, where He begins to show His authority in various ways. And we'll continue that thread this morning. But as we get started, I'd like to get you thinking about shaking. And I'd like to start this morning by thinking about the shaking of fear. Have you ever been so afraid, maybe when you were a child, or maybe yesterday, that you trembled physically, your body shook. You know, that's a pretty common phenomenon in human experience, especially among children. You know what's going on. Uh, There's adrenaline moving in your brain. A chemical reaction is happening where adrenaline is influencing your muscles to begin contracting. They're preparing you to fight or to flee. And sometimes this trembling can be driven by intense anger. You ever been so mad you were shaking? For some of us, that's perhaps more common. But general human experience, it actually is most often driven by fear. And we see this in the Bible, even. So we think of, for example, those who were fearful and trembling were dismissed from Gideon's army, back in Judges chapter 7, verse 3. Very often in Scripture, however, people tremble in terror when God shows up or when one of his angelic messengers comes for a visit. Moses, for example, trembled at the burning bush, afraid to look at God in the midst of the fire in the bush. At Mount Sinai, the people of Israel saw lightning and smoke coming from the top of the mountain and they heard thunder and loud trumpet blasts and they didn't know where they were coming from. God was on top of the mountain, and we're told in Exodus 20.18 that they were afraid and trembled. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.120, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Isaiah speaks of the Jewish people in Isaiah 33.14, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Ezekiel anticipates the Lord's arrival in judgment in Ezekiel 38.20 and says, All the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. Truly, as the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The angel who shows up at Jesus' tomb causes the Roman soldiers to tremble in terror and to faint. The women who meet that angel and see the empty tomb run away trembling in fear at the end of Mark's gospel. 
The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, who sneaks up on Jesus in a crowd, believing that if she could only touch Jesus' robe, she'd be healed. When Jesus stops the procession, turns around and asks the question, who touched me? Luke tells us that she came trembling. Was she afraid that he'd chastise her for touching him in her unclean state? Was she terrified that he'd ridicule her in front of the crowd? Or was she afraid that the crowd would freak out and attack her because she had been unclean among them, which technically would have rendered all of them unclean? Or was she afraid that Jesus would take the healing back and curse her for her impertinence? Coming face to face with angels, having an encounter with God, and sometimes at least being in the presence of God incarnate, God in the flesh, the man Jesus, caused people to tremble in terror. This morning I'd like to consider our passage, the second half of Matthew chapter 8, through the lens of shaking. There are three sections in our passage. In two of the three, Jesus causes some significant shaking. And in the middle, Jesus calms something that was shaking. We're going to look and see in verses 18 to 22 the shaking of expectations. In verses 23 through 27, we're going to see the shaking of the sea. And in verses 28 to 34, we're going to see the shaking of the enemy. So let's dive in to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This passage is held together by Jesus giving orders to travel across the Sea of Galilee the interruption of the journey by a storm, and finally the arrival on the other side and what happened there. First, we read about two conversations that Jesus had with two would-be disciples. Jesus' response shakes up both of these men's expectations. Both of these guys have been listening to Jesus' teaching. Both of these guys have been following Jesus around. They've witnessed some of his miracles, probably. And... They're approaching him him as disciples. Now, what we notice with the first man is that Matthew refers to him as a scribe. That is, he is a Jewish teacher. He's been a person who sat at the feet of other rabbis, and he's graduated of sorts, and he is now a teacher. And so when he comes to approach Jesus and he refers to him as teacher, we kind of need to be suspicious of that. He's actually addressing Jesus as a peer, one like him, a scribe. Now, he is coming to him as a rabbi, as a teacher, and he's wanting to study at his feet. He's already spent time under a rabbi. He's graduated and he's become a teacher, but now he wants some, an advanced degree, as it were. He wants to come and get some more training. He sees Jesus as, again, maybe uniquely authoritative from the teaching he heard on the mount... And he wants to sit under his feet. But what is he really looking for? What can we hear? I wish we could tell his tone. It's hard to read that into the text sometimes. But what does he mean when he makes this commitment to follow Jesus wherever he's going? Jesus hasn't really told anybody where he's going at this point, at least not in the grand scheme of things. He hasn't told people the full picture of the mission. In fact, he hasn't even really told them where he's going immediately. He's given orders to go over to the other side, which we'll come back to. That is significant. He's heading into Gentile territory, a strange place for a Jewish scribe to go, much less a Jewish rabbi like Jesus. And so what is this man expecting We might assume, we might wonder, we might speculate that this man thinks that he has something to offer Jesus. He's already studied, he's a scribe, and he comes to Jesus saying, I'll follow you wherever you go, and maybe we should hear him saying, and you'll be really lucky to have me, Jesus. I will be a great asset to your team and to your mission." He's really putting himself out there in the way that he approaches Jesus. He is commending himself 
to Jesus. The scribe is probably expecting Jesus to be a typical rabbi. That'll, that he'll follow him around and learn from him. And maybe Jesus has a nice school where he takes his students to hang out and to study God's word. You see, this man is expecting to follow Jesus into nice places. And Jesus is not really going to nice places. He is not a typical rabbi. We've talked about this before. Rabbis, Jewish rabbis in their day, let students come and pick them. So a, a, pers- a Jewish man who wants to study under a rabbi would approach the rabbi and say, hey, I'd like to study under you. He accepts applications. Jesus does not do that. He is not a typical rabbi in that regard. He does not accept applications. He calls his followers. He chooses his students. They do not choose him. And so this man has got his expectations in the wrong place here. The scribe has chosen Jesus, and he probably believes that he'll be a great asset to Jesus' ministry, but that is just not how Jesus works. Unlike other rabbis of his day, he doesn't accept applications. He's not looking for volunteers. He chooses his students. He calls his followers. The scribe here is being presumptuous. He hasn't counted the cost. He doesn't really know what he's asking or what he's committing to. And Jesus knows that this scribe really doesn't want any part of it. Jesus' response is a rebuke. Jesus' response is a stiff arm. Jesus' response is a rejection of this scribe in his approach. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus gives him a proverb of sorts. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Foxes get to go home every night. They have a hole. They can go out and do their business during the day, but they're going to go back in. Actually, it's the other way around. They sleep it in the daytime, don't they? But at any rate, when they're ready to go to bed, they go home. They go to their nest. They go to their den and they lay down and they go to sleep. Birds have places to roost. Anytime they're tired of flying, they can just land on a tree and settle in for the day. That's not going to be the way Jesus' ministry is. Now, then Jesus tells him, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we should hear this as a bit of a hyperbole, an exaggeration. Because if if you know Jesus' ministry, if you're familiar with the gospel story, you'll find Jesus having plenty of places to lay his head. He is hosted by wealthy people at times. He stays the night in nice places sometimes. Many times he's out traveling and he's out in the middle of nowhere. But oftentimes he's sleeping quite nicely in different places. But his point here is to shake up the scribe's expectations. That if you follow Jesus, you can't count on a good night's sleep. You can't count on a nice bed. You can't count on... Certainly not a school that we're going to go be studying in where we sit down in the quietness of a schoolhouse and study God's Word. That's not the kind of teaching Jesus is going to be doing. He's going to be doing it on the move and out in nature. And they're going to be... His teaching, his classroom is the world. It's out there in the nitty-gritty of life. And so he pushes this scribe back. And... We don't know how the scribe responded to this comment. Matthew doesn't care to tell us that. And it's not really important. The focus is all on Jesus and what he says and what he does in all of this. We need to talk about the title, The Son of Man. This is the first time we've seen it in Matthew's Gospel. It'll appear 30 times in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus is the only one who uses it. He refers to himself by this title. And... You need to think about what would the scribe have heard when he used this phrase. And Jesus uses this phrase on purpose. It's his favorite way of referring to himself. He likes this title. And it seems that part of the reason he likes it is because of its ambiguity. That people listening to him, when they heard him use the phrase, the Son of Man, they would not immediately connect it to anything significant, necessarily. They they could have heard him just saying, kind of in a poetic way, referring to himself. I have nowhere to lay my head. It's not uncommon in the Jewish culture to use this phrase in that way, that it's just another way of saying I myself, without any other significance whatsoever. Or a second way that people could have heard it when he said the Son of Man is that just as an ordinary, I'm an ordinary human being, just a guy. I'm just a son of Adam, a descendant of Adam. That's all. 
I'm just a man. Son of man is a way of referring to a male descendant of Adam. Period. But, biblically, there is one deep, strong significance to the title Son of Man, and we find out progressively, we find out gradually as the story continues that Jesus definitely means the Son of Man with a capital S and a capital M drawing specifically on Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The great vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7 of the four beasts and then the breaking open of heaven and one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days, God sitting on his throne and receiving from him a kingdom that he then shares with his saints. That's Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is referring to that every single time, but no one will notice that until the very end. And we'll see that progressively as we go to understand what does he mean when he calls himself the son of man? He's referring to himself as that exalted king, the human who receives the kingdom of God and brings it to the earth and shares it with his people. That's Daniel 7. And Jesus means that. But the scribe didn't pick up on that. Most of Jesus' hearers throughout throughout his ministry didn't pick up on that. But at the end, he will make it absolutely clear that is exactly what he means and exactly what he always meant. So he uses this term in a way that confuses That brings confusion and a lack of understanding initially. He has to fill that with the meaning that he intends for it, and he will do so by the end of the gospel. So Jesus identifies himself this way, and he says that his ministry is not going to be what you expect. We are going to be, we're on the move, and we're not always going to be in cushy places. And so your expectations are off base. You should pay attention to the term teacher in Matthew's gospel. This is not the case in Mark and Luke and John necessarily. But in Matthew, if somebody calls Jesus, as a, te- Jesus a teacher, they don't, that person doesn't become a believer. They're not a real follower of Jesus. Just pay attention to that. People who call Jesus teacher in Matthew are not believers. They're outsiders. And the scribe is presented that way here. So we go back to, we're introduced to a second man here, another of the disciples he's introduced in 21, verse 21, somebody who's been following Jesus around, listening to his teaching. And he refers to Jesus as Lord, so that's better than teacher. But we immediately, if we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew sequentially, we would remember that That might not be all that's needed. If you remember back to the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he's saying the right words, but what comes next becomes the way to think about or characterize this man. Let me first go and bury my father. This man has a firstness problem. And so again, taking us back to the Sermon on the Mount, we should remember how Jesus used the word first. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This man has a firstness problem. He has a priority issue. He's got something ahead of the kingdom of God. He's asking Jesus Let me first go and bury my father, which is a reasonable request. There are even rabbinic discussions along these very lines where Jewish rabbis would give permission to their students to forego their studies to bury their father, to do their duty to their parents. I mean, this is a reflection and an implication, a biblical implication of the commandment to honor your father and your mother, to give them a proper burial. But the fact that this man wants to do this first, that this will come ahead of me following Jesus, this will delay me being committed to Jesus, that cannot be. That cannot be. The kingdom of God must be first priority even over family responsibilities. Even over family responsibilities that are expressions of obedience to the Mosaic law. Following Jesus must take that kind of first priority. And so this man wants to go and bury 
his father. It's a little unclear what exactly is he wanting to do. It's very unlikely that this man's father has already died. In their culture, when a person dies, typically they bury them within 24 hours. So if his father had just died, this man would not be out here talking to Jesus. He would be with his family dealing with that situation. So it's likely that this man has not yet died. Maybe he's on his deathbed. Maybe he's really sick or maybe he's not. Maybe this man simply says, you know, I know my father's going to die at some point and it I've got an inheritance coming to me when he dies. And it may be that he's got that in mind as well. I will follow you once I've received my inheritance. And then, won't I be a great asset to your team, Jesus? I can bring my wealth. I can bring my new inheritance to your team. And we can do great things for God with all the stuff that I'll have. But I've got to wait to get it. And so, the second man expects Jesus to wait for him. He expects Jesus to encourage him to honor his father with a proper burial, and he may be expecting Jesus again to let him receive the inheritance that's coming to him. Then, inheritance in hand, he can be of real service to the kingdom of God. He can bring his wealth to help serve the cause. Instead, Jesus says, follow me now. Come now. Come as you are. Jesus doesn't need your accomplishments. Jesus doesn't need your possessions. Jesus doesn't need your wealth. Jesus doesn't need your talents. Jesus doesn't need you at all. Jesus' response has often been viewed as rude. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's not quite so rude if the man's father hasn't actually died yet. So let's keep that in mind, first of all. But I don't really feel the need to defend Jesus' propriety here. He uses a very powerful image here. And he expresses the truth that those outside the kingdom of God are dead. That's what he means when he says, leave the dead, those outside the kingdom of God, those who have no place in the kingdom of God, those who are not citizens of the kingdom of God, leave them to deal with the physical dead, to bury the physical dead. And his point here is not to lay out a principle or anything that's ongoing, like Christians shouldn't deal with their family matters. Of course we should. This is being presented as, I won't come to Jesus until I take care of this matter. And if that's being presented as a barrier, Jesus says not even that, not even the greatest, most important relational commitments and priorities of your life as a human being in this world can stand in the way of you coming to Jesus. It is that crucial. So this is not talking about, well, once I've come to Jesus, once I'm following Jesus, how then do I deal with the matters of death and grieving and dealing with my other responsibilities. This is talking about someone who's putting up a barrier, an obstacle for them even getting started on the journey. When Jesus says, enter the kingdom of heaven, he means, and this will become clear later in Matthew's gospel, we're in the same conversation, he will say, enter the kingdom of heaven means enter life. If you haven't entered the kingdom of heaven, if you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you do not have life. Not real life. You are dead. You are spiritually dead if you're outside the kingdom. Once you enter the kingdom, once you receive your citizenship papers, you have life. Everlasting, forever, eternal life. But until then, you are dead. And so Jesus pushes him back, rebuffs him, rebukes him, rejects this man. And so the question on the table for us, as Matthew zooms in our attention on Jesus and his response here, who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man that that calls for, that demands such exclusive allegiance? He's not a typical rabbi. He's not an ordinary traveling teacher. And we don't know what happened to either one of these two men. We don't know what they did, how they responded, how they took what Jesus said. The passage is all about Jesus. Matthew wants us to hone in on his words, on the way he deals with these men. And we should marvel at the way Jesus presents himself here. 
The focus on Jesus' identity continues as those who are committed to following him, probably not more than 12, the 12, who will be named later in Matthew's gospel, follow him into a boat and go out onto the Sea of Galilee to head over into Gentile territory. So let's consider the shaking of the sea in verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Matthew describes what happens here very interestingly. Our English Bibles simply say, Behold, verse 24, there arose a great storm on the sea. Mark and Luke, when they tell this same story, they use an ordinary word for a windstorm or high winds on the sea. Matthew chooses a very odd word, which should perk up our attention here. He uses the Greek word seismos, which is where we get the English word seismic or seismograph, a thing that measures the intensity of earthquakes. This Greek word seismos is normally used as an earthquake. And so Matthew chooses to describe this as an earthquake on the sea. This is very odd. And we should consider why would he do that? And when we think about that question, Matthew refers to earthquakes in other places in his gospel. And so maybe there's something significant about that that we should consider. In Matthew's gospel, an earthquake will occur when Jesus dies on the cross... An earthquake will occur when Jesus rises from the dead. A separate er earthquake. Jesus Jesus in his teaching in Matthew 24 will also note that earthquakes will be a part of ongoing history as part of the beginning of the birth pains leading up to his return and the end of the age. Around 20 times in the Old Testament, earthquakes are mentioned specifically as an outworking of God's wrath and judgment. Thus, for Matthew to use the Greek word seismos for this shaking of the sea probably means he saw this terrifying event as in line with the kinds of earthquakes that accompany God's judgment. So the disciples' fear is understandable along those lines. And isn't it common in our own experience when something terrible and terrifying happens to us to begin wondering if God might be angry with us? punishing us for something we've done wrong. Perhaps the disciples are thinking along those lines. They fear perishing, being destroyed by God's judgment in an earthquake on the sea. Jesus sleeps through the shaking. He finds rest in the middle of the storm. He doesn't fear God's judgment. He's never done anything wrong. And he also knows that he will actually be the one to execute God's judgment against the wicked. So he has nothing to fear. The disciples are surely yelling in chaotic confusion. That probably accounts for the different questions recorded in the different gospel accounts of this event. Here, Matthew records three simple, panicky words. Lord, save, dying! Mark, has them questioning whether Jesus cares that they are about to die. Luke simply has them yelling, Master, Master, we are perishing! Matthew alone quotes someone as calling Jesus Lord and calling on Him to save or rescue them. This fits with an emphasis of Matthew's that we saw in the early chapters. Recall the meaning of Jesus' name as it was given to us in Matthew chapter 1. His parents were to name him Jesus because he has come to save his people from their sins. Thus here, the disciples appeal to the very purpose of his presence with them. This man, though they don't know it yet, is Emmanuel, God with us to save us. So Jesus gets up to chastise his disciples before he deals with the storm. 
He uses a very strong word for afraid. He calls them cowards. Then he calls them little faith people. You have little faith. This figure of speech is very important for us to consider. When Jesus speaks in terms of the size of a person's faith, he is speaking figuratively. Faith is not something that can literally be measured or weighed on a scale. This is not about quantity. This is about quality. Here we have to bring out one of my favorite phrases and one that some of you might be really tired of hearing. In a certain sense... In a certain sense, the disciples do have faith. They go to Jesus, after all. They call on Him to save them. But in another sense, they do not have faith. They do not yet understand who He is or what He's capable of. It's not real clear what they expect Him to do. Because when He shuts off the storm instantly, they're shocked. That's not what they expected. In Mark's account, Jesus' chastising question to them is, have you still no faith? With the understood answer, no. In Luke's account, Jesus' chastising question to them is, where is your faith? With the understood answer, it, nowhere. Their fear reveals their lack of faith. That in that moment... In the face of the threat, they did not trust Jesus with the safety of their lives. To be a little faith person is to have a defective faith that is not truly faith. Even though these disciples are following Jesus, listening to His teaching, watching His other miracles, they do not yet believe in Him in a way that impacts their lives, that shapes their perspective. But... And this is a huge but. Notice that Jesus still saves them. He performs a magnificent miracle in the face of their unbelief. Did he need to do that? He could have said, I know, I know using my great all-knowing omniscience, that this storm is not going to destroy our boat. I know that none of you will lose your lives. Chill out and relax. Take a nap. Maybe that's what they were expecting. Jesus could have said some words to calm their fears. He turned, instead, he turned and said some words and calmed the storm. He turned the great storm, the great earthquake on the sea, into a great calm by speaking a word. Their faith was poor, basically non-existent, and He still did the miracle. This flies in the face of the ugly, destructive, false, false teaching that says the reason God doesn't do miracles for you, the reason God doesn't heal you when you ask Him, or the reason God doesn't heal your loved ones when you ask Him to is because you don't have enough faith. Your weak faith is not standing in the way of God doing what He wants to do. In your life. Now, that's not to say that Jesus is okay with your weak faith. He's not okay with us having weak, defective, little faith. He chastises the disciples sharply here, and he'll do so again later. He calls us to trust him, and he commands us to trust him. And we don't please him by refusing to trust him. Nevertheless, Our lack of faith does not stop Him from doing His work in our lives. Thank God for that. The account ends with the disciples. Matthew curiously and awkwardly refers to them as men here. They marveled. They were amazed and astonished, shocked at what Jesus had done. And they are finally asking the right question. What sort of man is this? Ironically, the demons in the next passage will answer their question correctly for them. We readers are meant to connect this with our Old Testament. There are a number of passages in the Old Testament where God is said to control and even rebuke the sea. God is the one who controls and causes earthquakes. God is the one who controls the sea. Every tsunami, every hurricane, every superstorm is under the minute control of our God. Psalm 89.9 praises Him. 
You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Jesus is God in human flesh. He rules over nature. He causes shaking and he settles it. When you are threatened or challenged and you find yourself shaking in your boots, go to Jesus. He can calm your fears. He will expose your lack of faith, but He won't abandon you in it. He will walk with you through your fear all the way to the other side. After demonstrating His power over nature's upheaval, the brokenness of the world due to the fall and rebellion of humanity, Jesus takes His disciples into Gentile territory, into enemy territory in more ways than one, where they will witness the shaking of the enemy. Look at verses 28 to 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's how I imagine it. (laughs) Matthew inserts a parenthetical comment here. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What is Jesus doing heading over into Gentile territory this early in his ministry? And what would his disciples have expected Perhaps they expected him to go over there to pronounce judgment against the unclean, pagan, idolatrous Gentiles. Or, since there were some Jews living in that region, perhaps they would have expected him to go to find some of those Jews and lead them out. Whatever they might have expected, they are in for a shock. Luke's account suggests that the men Jesus meets are from this region. Part of the Roman Decapolis which suggests that they are indeed Gentiles and not Jews. Famously, Mark and Luke only mention one man, while Matthew mentions two. Probably, Mark and Luke choose to focus on one man, either because he was a spokesman for the two, or perhaps because one of the men became later known. Matthew specifies that they were two men. Mark gives a lot more details in this story, dedicating a full 20 verses, whereas Matthew only uses seven verses to tell the story. Let's consider the situation here. These two demon-possessed men meet him. So these are two men in whom many demons had taken up residence. So this is, these are two, and I think they're Gentile, pagan men, and An army of demons lives inside of the two of them. We know this from Mark and Luke's account, where Jesus has a little more of a conversation with the demons, and they identify themselves as legion. Now, that is a title, a name that's given to them to say, we have a whole bunch here, and it's a military term, which we need to think about demons in terms of a military force. They are an army. They are a garrison of soldiers placed in this place and in these people by Satan. These are his Soldiers, and he has sent them into two particular men, a host of them. Now, a legion, a, mili- a Roman legion is like 6,000 soldiers. I don't think we have to take that literally to say there are 6,000 demons here. I don't think that's the point, but there are a lot of them. Maybe even a couple of thousand, since the Mark tells us that there are 2,000 pigs, and that may or may not be relevant to the story here, to those details. But we have two men who are have demons living inside of them, evil spirits who control their actions and their words to some extent. That's a real thing that happens to real people who don't know Jesus, who are still outside of the kingdom of God. These two men are suffering and are causing suffering for other people. 
Matthew says that, that uh, they, they block a road. Those who would pass by there can't because they fight them off. They attack them when they come by. But the other phrase Matthew uses is very interesting. He describes them as coming out of the tombs. Now think about that. Literally, when somebody comes out of a tomb, that's resurrection language. That's dead people coming out. And I think there's some, a double entendre here going on. Matthew means to describe that they literally were, these two men were sleeping in the caves where dead bodies were housed overnight. They were out there hanging out and sleeping there. And so they literally get up and walk out of there. But underneath that, we need to recognize that these men are dead men, essentially. Not literally. They're spiritually dead. They're in bondage to Satan and his forces. And they're a part of his kingdom. They are under his complete control. And Jesus comes to engage with them here. And so these two men's situation is awful. Mark describes it with much more colorful detail uh, on how they were acting and what they were doing. But Matthew is minimalistic here in his description. But let's get what they say. They see Jesus and they recognize him immediately. They've only seen him for one second and they know who he is. And so in verse 29 they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? There's the answer to the question that the disciples asked in the boat. What sort of man is this? This is a man who is the Son of God. Now, we reading Matthew, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Matthew spent the first four chapters establishing the fact that Jesus is the Son of God in a whole host of ways. But the disciples hear this for the first time from the demons. And so they've got it right. They know who he is, and they know something else. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They see Jesus, they rightly identify Him as the Son of God, and they know that the Son of God has the right and the responsibility of tormenting demons at a specific point in history. And they're surprised that He's shown up so soon. According to their understanding of the timeline, He's early, like way early. And they don't know what to do with that. They're surprised. Why are you here? We need to recognize that this is a picture that we see many times in the Gospels that Jesus is an invading king. He is a king who is invading enemy territory. And he is coming to conquer the enemy. And he's doing it in a way that they don't expect because they don't understand the storyline. They don't understand the way this is supposed to work. They, like the Jews... Don't expect this to happen until the very, very end of history and it's too stinking early from their understanding. And the Jews think that way too. They're confused about when he's supposed to show up and what he's supposed to do. And the demons are too. But they know who he is. They recognize him immediately. And it's interesting to consider what is the answer to their question? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Yes, Or no? (laughs) I think yes. Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he gets busy, we might say, tormenting them. Uh, He's almost picking on them here, poking at them in the way that he handles this. We'll puzzle over that in just a minute as well as to what happens and why. But Jesus responds to them after they ask for permission, so they see there's pigs over here. Mark tells us there were 2,000. And they say, in verse 31, they beg him. Notice that, begging. If you cast us out, and you're going to cast us out, so send us away into the herd of pigs. From Mark, we learn that the demons don't want to be sent out of the region. Send us into the pigs, but don't send us out of the territory. This may be an indication that this legion of demons has established some kind of evil operation in this area, in this city, in this town, in this region. And from Luke's account, we learn that the demons don't want to be sent into the abyss. Send us into the pigs, but not the abyss. In Revelation chapter 9, we read about the abyss, or the bottomless pit, being opened. And what can only be described as demonic locusts are released to bring pain and suffering to those who are not sealed by God. This is the place, the abyss, where Satan will be imprisoned for a thousand years. 
this legion of demons, doesn't want to be imprisoned there prematurely. This is not hell. Hell is the final destination for Satan, all demons, and all humans who don't trust Jesus during their lives. But the abyss seems to be like a holding cell of sorts, probably located in Hades. This, that is where they expect Jesus to send them to torment them, but they beg him not to do so now. They recognize Jesus as God's son, and they recognize that he is the one who will judge, punish, and torment them for eternity. Here, Jesus speaks a word, and a demonic army obeys his command. Unquestioning, no resistance, they go. Now what happens next is very puzzling. They enter the pigs, and the whole herd then rushes down into the waters, the sea, and drowns, and the pigs die. We do not know what happened to the demons at that point. None of the gospel writers tell us that. All of the gospel writers describe this pretty much the same way. The herd of pigs suddenly launches themselves off a cliff and into the sea, and then they drown. The pigs drown. So what happens to the demons when their host dies? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I have no idea. I will speculate (laughs) for just a moment. (laughs) There's something important I think we need to see that in every one of these, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these two stories are back to back. I mean, this happened right after they had crossed the sea and Jesus had demonstrated his authority over the sea. Well, guess where the pigs end up? In the sea. So just in the previous paragraph, just a few verses earlier, we read about how Jesus controls the sea. So, who caused what happens to the pigs here? And why? We could raise some questions. Maybe the demons wanted to go into the pigs so that they could kill the pigs. Maybe they wanted to do that so that they could cause Jesus the trouble that he's going to experience in just a couple of verses, that the people are going to reject him and ask him to leave. Maybe they did this strategically, and then maybe they get to leave and go elsewhere. I don't know that part. Or it's possible that the demons entered the pigs, and the pigs being like shocked that they've been inhabited, but not, they haven't, the demons haven't fully taken control of the pigs yet, They freak out and just leave and run off the cliff and dive into the sea, and then they drown. I am told, I know nothing about this, but I am told that pigs can swim. So, hypothetically, they shouldn't have drowned. They should have been okay. But they don't. All of them die. They drown in the sea, and that seems odd. So, maybe, then, a third option presents itself in light of the fact that Jesus is the one who controls the sea. Jesus intended for the demons to go into the pigs. And then Jesus intended for the pigs to die in the sea. He controlled the sea so that the pigs died. And in dying, the demons have nowhere to go. They have no host, and they end up going to the abyss. Speculation right here. Total speculation. That is not gospel. That is not explained at all. But it's possible that that's what is going on here. Either way, the point that Matthew wants to draw us to is that the herdsmen go and tell the people in the town, and the people in the town come out, and they don't like what they heard. And they beg Jesus, same way the demons begged Jesus. They beg Jesus to leave their region. Luke tells us that the people begged Jesus to leave because they were seized with great fear. Matthew doesn't tell us why they ask him to leave, but Luke does. We could speculate about what they're afraid of, specifically. Perhaps they were worried about the economic impact that the destruction of a herd of 2,000 pigs would have on their region. The simplest, most straightforward inference we could draw seems to me to be that the people of this region remain under the rule of Satan. And at this moment, Jesus chooses to set free only two demonically enslaved men from their region. And that sounds the alarm to the rest of the demons, the rest of, to Satan himself perhaps, that Jesus is invading his kingdom. And I think we can see that this rescue operation does have a ripple effect, a positive ripple effect in this region. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't mention what Mark and Luke do about how the city people 
uh, how the two men that were rescued from demons here, how they asked Jesus to go with him. They said, we want to follow you, Jesus. We want to go with you. Take us with you. And Jesus said no. He didn't allow them to go. Instead, he sent them home to tell people what God had done for them. Why did he do that? Was it because they were Gentiles? Maybe, at this point. But in both of the accounts, they're to go home and tell everybody what the Lord has done. Even though right at this moment, in their ignorance... They reject Jesus, the people of the town. They reject Jesus and want him to leave town. Jesus will actually return to this region later in his ministry. We don't know how much time has passed, but in Matthew chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, Jesus will return to this side of the Sea of Galilee, and we read these words. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they, these Gentiles, glorified the God of Israel. You know what happens next? He feeds them. 4,000 Gentiles get a miraculously provided meal over in Gentile territory. Perhaps that was a product of this, these two men telling everybody what God had done for them so that when he came back to their region, they were ready. They wanted him. They wanted his help. This early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus seems to go out of his way into Gentile territory to rescue two Gentile men from demonic enslavement. And this surely foreshadows the Great Commission and the extension of the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. As Jesus sends us out into the world to make disciples of all nations, we preach the same gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that God uses to set people free from slavery to sin and Satan. So this passage portrays Jesus shaking things up. He shakes up people's expectations. He shakes up the enemy by eliminating a legion of demons, and he puts an end to the shaking upheaval of nature. But there's coming a day when the Lord is going to shake all things. For those who trust and follow Jesus, we need not fear the shaking to come. The Lord shook the earth when He showed up at Mount Sinai, and when the people refused to obey the words He spoke from the mountain, He judged them. The author of Hebrews comments on this in order to challenge his Christian hearers. And I'd like to extend his, extend his words to you this morning. Listen to Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, that's Jesus. At that time his voice shook the earth, But now he has promised through the words of the prophet Haggai, Haggai 2.6, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God is speaking to you from heaven through His Son, Jesus, right now, today. For those of you who know Jesus, who are citizens of His heavenly kingdom, express your gratitude for receiving an unshakable kingdom. No matter how shaky our world becomes, no matter how shaky your life becomes, your citizenship in heaven cannot be removed or revoked. So, live your life in day by day, moment by moment, worship of the risen King. Keep running from and fighting sin in your life and seek to please the Lord in your everyday experience. For anyone who doesn't know Jesus, you need to know that this great shaking is coming. And if you wait for the tremors to begin, that will be too late. When Jesus returns, Isaiah 13, 13 will find its final fulfillment. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. Or, as an angel puts it in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Don't get lost in the imagery of the mark of the beast. This is referring to what happens to every person throughout history who does not trust and follow Jesus. This is the torment that the demons feared. This is hell. Notice that it is not the absence of Jesus that makes this hell. Jesus will not be absent from hell. It will be His presence that will be so eternally tortuous to the prisoners of hell Jesus will be there and they will wish He weren't. Hell is the place where people will experience the wrath of the Lamb forever and ever. It is also the Lamb Himself who saves sinners from this eternal torment. Salvation is not offered to demons. It is offered to people. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain in order to ransom people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is the Son of God who saved His disciples from the storm on the sea by speaking a word on their behalf. And He continues to speak on behalf of all those who trust and follow Him. He rose from the dead, the conquering Lion of Judah, took His seat at the right hand of God where He now prays for and provides for His people. You can't come to Him on your own terms. He's not going to wait for you to do whatever you think is more important. He is the King of Kings, and He has given His life to rescue sinners from eternal destruction. Come to Him today. Call out for Him to save you today. Follow Him today. Would you pray with me? Father, You have warned us. You have called us to follow Jesus now. And You have been so good to show us His power, His authority, and His love. And how there is no obstacle that He doesn't overcome. There is no barrier that He does not break down to rescue sinful people from slavery. So thank You. Thank You for His great power. Thank You for His great work on the cross that achieved salvation. Nothing more needs to be done You simply call on us to receive and to believe what has happened for our benefit. So would you help us to trust? Would you help us to grow out of our little faith? Chastise us, yes, Lord. Discipline us, yes, Lord. Rebuke us when we don't trust you. And teach us and shape us and give us the faith that you call us to. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit to do that very thing. We all need to grow. We all need to come to the place where we admit when our faith is small and weak and defective and run to you knowing that you're the only one who can give it to us and who can strengthen it. And so we come asking, strengthen our faith, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.